You're listening to audio from the St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. How's everybody? Good? Good weekend? (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, We are going to pick up where we left off last week, and I'd love to read this for you today. We'll add about four verses on to where we ended last week. So hear the word of God this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what they called salt in the ancient world? Salt. White gold. They called it white gold. And the reason it was called white gold was that, uh, much like Pastor Susan said earlier today, it was a commodity in many ways that you could trade for food, for clothing, for everything else in between. In fact, the use of salt has been in existence for about 11,000 years. And in the days of Jesus, it had about 14,000 uses, or so that's what they say. They built these roads all over the ancient world to connect. They were called salt roads in some places to connect different uh, trade networks throughout the empire to allow for the distribution of salt, the buying and trading of salt. And salt's important. I mean, it makes things taste better. It preserves things. You can't destroy it. And Jesus said, most importantly, that we're called to be salt, salt and light. In fact, last week, we talked a bit about how to get there. We said that there are two kinds of people that Jesus is addressing in this part of the teaching, the crowds and the disciples. And the crowds, they're much like the culture that we have. They find happiness in things that are conditional, conditional uh, situations, places, people, different times in their lives. More often than not, when we talk about conditional happiness, it's in past tense or in future tense. I was happy when the kids were little. I was happy when I fell in love. I was happy when I was a student in college because I paid no taxes and didn't have a mortgage. (laughs) Or I'll be happy when I get a new job. I'll be happy when... I get an answer that I want. I'll be happy when 
I win the lottery, these kinds of things. Conditional happiness. That's the crowds, people who are loosely connected to Jesus, but he's not really at the heart of all that they are and all that they do. The disciples, conversely, are very different. They're committed. Wherever Jesus goes, they go. Wherever he sleeps, they sleep. Whatever he's doing, they try to do. And so they have a conclusive kind of happiness. It's fixed, and the different situations, conditions of life don't affect them as much. And we said that true happiness or blessedness doesn't come from what's conditionally changing, but from one who's conclusively eternal. Our happiness, true happiness, comes from God. The struggle is we don't tend to live our lives that way, do we? We tend to live them like uh, a bicycle wheel. And there's different spokes on this wheel. Our work life, our married life, our spiritual life, finances, all of these kinds of things. And perhaps the way that we approach life is like this. When one of those spokes breaks, we find ourselves unhappy because the conditions that we wanted aren't present. And so we say, I'll be happy when, or I was happy when. Conditional happiness. And really what Jesus is after is he doesn't want to be a spoke. Rather, he wants to be the hub, the center of our life. And based on our relationship to him and with him, we find our sense of happiness, which influences the spokes, and recognize that when we roll through this thing called life, we're going to have moments where spokes break. But those conditions don't necessarily have to affect our happiness or sense of blessedness. Jesus, in being the center, said something powerful to us. In fact, he gives us these eight Beatitudes Happy are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and even the persecuted. There's eight beatitudes. And throughout scripture, eight is an important number. There were eight people who went in the ark. We might think about David, who was the eighth son of Jesse. We might even more importantly think about Jesus, rose from the dead on the eighth day. Eight's the number of new life. And this new way of life, which Jesus is giving people, remember he goes up on a mountain to teach them, is meant to become the way of life that disciples of Jesus live. And it transforms us from being spiritually broken to becoming pure in heart. And that's what these Beatitudes are all about. They're the ways of being happy and blessed. I can't stress that enough that these are not rules They're not rules. It's a way of life, a way of salt and light that won't spoil, that transforms, that's not conditional but eternal. And that is so different than what existed in the world in the days of Jesus. In fact, you might remember a group of people, the Pharisees, yes? Kind of the religious renicops of the ancient world. And all of culture is really about following these different laws. And for good reasons. Remember, there's 713 Old Testament commandments. And what the Pharisees did is they took the commandments and interpreted them and built laws upon more laws upon more laws. They called the system the tradition of the elders. And here's how it would work. Let's say that we take the commandment, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So there's the core commandment. What the Pharisees would do is say, well, how do you honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? Let us tell you, you can't use your oven on the Sabbath day. You can't walk more than a mile from your home. If somebody has an ox that falls into a ditch, you better not help them because if you do that, that's work. 
And so they build laws upon more laws upon more laws. And here's the kicker. The Pharisees believed that if for one day Israel could live all of their tradition and all the laws of Israel, the Messiah would return. How many people know that's a system destined to fail? And so people, more often than not, yes, did they desire to live life in union with God, you bet, but you have to wonder what kind of state of happiness or blessedness existed in that kind of world. Now we say, well, that's crazy. We don't do anything like that today. And that's where I would say I completely disagree with you. We just have different rules. And in fact, the complexity of that system of rules is even more developed than it was in the days of the Pharisees because often those rules are unwritten. And they flow from place to place and people group to people group. And we keep them sometimes. We say, well, these rules are worth keeping and these rules maybe we don't need to follow as much. The speed limit is perhaps a good one. It's really the speed suggestion, I I think. And for Christians, this is all the more true. We have all kinds of rules about the length of your hair and what kind of tattoo you can get or not get, about what we do with alcohol, the clothing we wear, the music that we listen to. And along the way, we've missed some of the more important things like greed or charity or maybe the worst of all, pride. And this way of life, well... This rules kind of way, this is not what's at the heart of what Jesus has to share. He's after a way of life, not another rule. And if you recognize that at the very beginning you're spiritually bankrupt, well, the kingdom is open to you. And in that, the kingdom is in a possession that you gain. It's a way of life that you live. And you live into that life and you really find what's truly blessed and happy. A life of meaning, of purpose. A life that isn't constantly being tossed back and forth, like Paul says in the book of Ephesians, like the waves. A fixed point that keeps us happy and grounded and true. And the hardest part about all of it is this. This kind of life is completely countercultural to the world that we're raised in and the world that we live in. I can't ever imagine Coach Stoops would say before a football game against the Florida Gators, blessed are the meek. (laughs) I played hockey for a long time. We never talked about meekness before we went out on the ice. Or could you imagine that down at the UK College of Business, uh, the lecture for Monday morning with business students would be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness more than the almighty dollar and being profitable. Or would the campus really get excited about the blessed are the pure at heart initiative? And that's my point. These ways, these eight ways that bring new life are completely countercultural to the world that we live in. In many ways, even suggesting them, it's met with laughter or dismissal or mockery or maybe even pure disgust. Who are you to say this to me? Biblical scholar Michael Wilkins of the Talbot School of Theology chronicles his journey into faith 
And the Beatitudes are in part what wrecked him. He talks about how he went to youth group one night with three of his three-star or four-star athlete buddies who played multiple sports in high school. And the idea of being meek out on the football field, well, we're, we're not meek. We're out to crush somebody. And so he went away to school on a college scholarship. And before you know it, he ended up in an airborne unit in the jungles of Vietnam. And he describes after a serious battle that he was a part of where many people lost their lives, he realized that there was something wrong with the condition of his heart to take joy in the death of other people. He wasn't invincible. He also recognized that his life was finite. And with every breath, it was coming to an end. And he realized that at the end of all this, as proud as he was to serve, he was going to need a different way to live. He later would say, I realize there's a choice. Jesus' way to the kingdom of God or the world's way to destruction. And that's why the Beatitudes are so powerful. Because what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the lowlifes. Blessed are the drug dealers and the gangsters. And the thieves and the strippers and the addicts. And the corporate American uh, CEO persons who rob others in their company of having a better life. Blessed are those who are prideful. Blessed are the hypocrites. Blessed are the spiritually proud. Now all of a sudden it just got real, didn't it? Blessed are the politicians. Blessed are the Duke fans. Blessed are even the UK fans. Are your eyes wide open yet? See, more often than not, I wonder if we've reduced the gospel and the Christian message to the simple belief that it's about being a good person. So let me wreck that for you today. It's not. The Christian message is this. You're not a good person. There's only one good person. And his name is Jesus. He died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. And your relationship to him has an eternal impact on your life. It's that simple. The Christian message is you're spiritually bankrupt and you have nothing to offer God. And yet when you realize your brokenness, he opens wide his arms and says the kingdom is yours. Welcome. Beatitudes start at the bottom. Ditch your pride. Flood the altars with your tears. Stop putting on a show. Stop being spiritually proud. And stop saying, well, at least I'm not one of those people. And we've all got our list, don't we? The minute that we think this, we've completely set ourselves outside the kingdom. We've missed it. Altogether, And it's the most prideful thing that we tell ourselves because here's the deal. What the Beatitudes say to us is this. I am, you are, we are those people. Every single one of us. The playing field is level. We're broken as the next person. And that kind of faith, 
that kind of belief that I'm better than those people, well, that's what keeps us from being salt and light. It keeps us from being the most valuable people, the most valuable thing on earth, just like white gold. And we wonder, why are our churches dying? And why does the culture seem to go on to hell in a handbasket and all of these kinds of things? And maybe what we've got to do is ask ourselves, what kind of countercultural alternative church have we offered people? What kind of salt and light are we that others would want to be part of the kingdom kind of life? What kind of message is it that we're offering? Or is it simply just watered down? Hey, I'm good, you're good, we're all good. If it's not too much trouble, how about you do something nice for somebody today? That's not the gospel. That's a sham. See, when worship and scripture and prayer and serving and generosity and charity towards other people become optional, well, here's the thing. The Christian life is optional. And the gospel has just become optional. And so this scripture begs of us the question, am I salty? Is there something different about me? Am I in, in connection with Jesus Christ? Is he my life? And if not, well, it gets trampled. Look at what the scripture says. It says, you are the... Do you believe that about yourself? Are you living like it? Because if the salt's lost its taste, how do you restore it? It's no longer good. It gets thrown out. It gets trampled. That's the end of the story. The kingdom way of life is a way to be, to think, to live, to become the people of God that we're called to be. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you're the light of the world. Do you believe that about yourself? Church, is that who we are, the light of the world, a city set on a hill that beckons people? If you're spiritually bankrupt, come here to St. Luke, and you'll be loved well. If you don't have it all figured out, come and be a part of this community, and we'll show you a different way. Because that's who I believe we're called to be. And you can't hide that. You can't put it under a basket. You have to put it out on a stand and let your light shine before other people so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, if we get it right, we become like a hospital for the spiritually broken and wounded. We say, hey, you think happiness doesn't exist? You don't know what it is to be blessed? Well, come on, brother or sister. Let us show you the way in. If you're the mourner who continues to weep, you're welcome. If you're the meek that's been overlooked in your workplace, you're welcome. If you've been denied what's right, you're welcome. If you want to find satisfaction in your life, you're welcome. If you haven't found mercy, come find it at the cross. If you need new life because of every road that you've traveled on, you've only experienced brokenness, then you'll find new life here at this city on a hill. Is that the kind of church we want to be? Because Jesus says that's what it is to be salt and light, to love those people and to recognize you're one of those people to recognize you're spiritually bankrupt. And yet the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God is that he doesn't leave you there. He loves you where you are, and yet he loves you too much to leave you where you were. 
It starts at spiritual bankruptcy, and you'll notice the later beatitude, we become pure in heart for God. And that's what holy love does, friends. It's not the love of this world, a love that's just gooey and sappy and says, eh, it's all good. It's a love that transforms and makes us new and makes us salt and light. Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes ultimately shows us this, a way of life meant to become your life for all of life. And that reminds me of my son Luke this morning. When Luke was a little guy, about three, four years old, we would go out to the practice range to hit balls. And we only had a couple different rules. The first was to hit it as hard as you can and have as much fun as you can. And the second rule was we're going to go get slushies afterwards because high fructose corn syrup fixed everything. Am I tracking with you? And so really what I wanted to show him was this way of life, this, this hobby that we could enjoy together, this fun thing to do together as a, a dad and a son. And so one day we're out there at the range and Luke is beating balls as hard as he can, swinging as hard as he can. Sometimes he falls over, his grip isn't perfect, not everything is on plane the way it's supposed to be, but he is loving life and he's laughing and experiencing joy and it's all good. And this older gentleman walks up and says, I appreciate what you're trying to do. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, but you're not doing it right. (laughs) And I said, oh, okay, well, help me. And he goes, well, here's the thing. You need to teach him how to grip the club correctly, and then you need to make sure that he's aimed the right way, and you need to make sure that his stance is right, and his swing plane is the right way, and he's swinging way too hard. And here's the other, and he gives me this list of like 50 things that I'm supposed to do. And I wanted to stop right there and say, like, dude, he's three. I mean, what? <laughs> you know, if you don't do this right, he's, he's not going to enjoy the game later. He's going to have it all wrong. And I said, well, you know, let me offer you my perspective on this. I'm trying to teach him at a young age how to have fun, how to hit it as hard as he can. And at a certain point, the raw power that he's got, there's going to be things along the way that narrow that power into this beautifully controlled golf swing. And I think that's kind of like the Christian life, too. We start off in a wide place, and the further we go with Jesus, it narrows, yes? And so the guy said, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so I have to confess my, my pride because I asked the question. I said, well, you know, you got all these rules that you want me to teach him. What's your handicap? And he said, well, 18. And I said, well, I'm a scratch. Thanks. But I think about the way we start off as just little people in the kingdom And the growth and the work that God does in our lives. We start off with very little. And when we recognize we have nothing to offer and everything to learn, God takes us by the hand and he watches us grow from spiritually bankrupt to pure in heart. And along the way, we not only learn the power of God, 
we come to recognize the grace of God. Yes? And that's what he wants for you. And that's the way to true happiness. A way of life for your life, for all of life. And Jesus' desire is to walk with you because he loves you so much more abundantly than we can put into words. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that this entrance to the kingdom life starts with a simple admission that we have nothing to offer you but everything to gain. And so, Lord, today we repent of our own spiritual life that we try to construct without you, of the rules that are bent to include ourselves and exclude others, of recognizing that we miss mercy and grace. And so today, Jesus, we fall at the cross and simply say, forgive me, a sinner. And we thank you that you died on a cross to reveal the depths of your love for each one of us. We thank you that you rose again from the dead, the eighth day to bring us new life. And we're grateful for these beatitudes which show us the way of life. May you transform us from spiritually bankrupt to pure in heart, even to the point of being willing to be persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. That's the kind of heart that we want to have, Jesus.